Welcome to today's episode of Health Tree Podcast or AML, a podcast that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Kara Thayman. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Bristol Myers Squibb, for their support of this Health Tree Podcast for AML episode. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention an upcoming event that we will be hosting. On June 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern, we will host a virtual event within our adult AML chapter titled Finding Mental Strength Through Physical Activity. Lindley Sweening, Health Tree's fitness director and cancer exercise specialist, will speak with us all about physical activity for AML. Movement is useful beyond keeping us strong physically. It can help you manage the stressful nature of an aggressive cancer, resulting in significant benefits on your mental and emotional well-being. Come learn from Lindley about the benefits of physical activity and how you can incorporate movement into your daily routine as an AML patient. You can register for all our events by visiting our website, healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash events. As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Sweet a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you are ready to ask your question. And now on to our show today. Immunotherapy continues to be an expanding and evolving area of research for AML. More and more clinical trials in immunotherapy pave the way for this modality to become a viable therapeutic option in AML. As of today, the only immunotherapy options available are stem cell transplantation and the drug demtuzumab osgomycin. Dr. Kendra Sweet from Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, is here with us today to help us learn more about the current landscape of immunotherapy in AML and tell us about an antibody drug conjugate in development called IMGN-632. Dr. Sweet will explain what IMGN-632 is, which AML patients may benefit from it, and discuss a trial she is working on using this drug. We are so happy to have you here with us today, Dr. Sweet, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us and discuss immunotherapy for acute myeloid leukemia, and specifically the clinical trials involving the use of IMGN-632. Before we get started, I'd love to provide an introduction for Dr. Sweet. Dr. Sweet is an associate member in the Department of Malignant Hematology at Moffitt Cancer Center and has an appointment as an assistant professor in the Department of Oncologic Sciences at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. Her clinical interests include myeloid malignancies with a particular focus on acute myeloid leukemia, chronic myeloid leukemia, and myelodysplastic syndrome. Her work has been published in many prestigious journals. And now let's jump into our discussion for today. Dr. Sweet, for anyone newly diagnosed, can you explain what immunotherapy is and can you give us an overview of the current immunotherapy landscape in regards to AML? Absolutely, and thank, thank you for having me here. Um, I'm excited to be here. Um, immunotherapy, I think if you want just kind of a very broad definition of what immunotherapy is, it's treatment that would um, use a person's own immune cells to help kill a cancer cell. Um, so we can have immunotherapies that would either rev up the immune system um, 
to, to use those immune cells to kill off a cancer cell or could suppress certain functions of the immune system to achieve an anti-cancer response. Um, and either of those could be considered an immunotherapy. Um, and currently, there's a variety of different immunotherapies that are being studied in AML. Um, there's, there's a class of drugs called bispecific antibodies or another very similar type of drug called a dual affinity retargeting uh, agent or antibody. Um, and these, it's, easy, it's easy if I could draw a picture of this, but I'll try to, to make this a visual if I can. Um, essentially what these drugs are, they're um, two, two antibodies um, that are connected together by some kind of a linker. Um, and then one of the antibodies uh, is able to bind to a marker or a protein that's on the surface of a leukemia cell. So that antibody will attach to the leukemia cell. And then the other antibody um, is able to bind to a marker or protein on the surface of, um, of the patient's own T cells or immune cells. Um, and these, these T cells are, are your cells that are basically there to kill for, anything foreign um, in your body. So essentially, you now you have this, this, um, these two antibodies that are connected together by this linker. One is bound or attached to, um, to a leukemia cell. One is attached to a T cell. And because those two antibodies are connected, it's brought those two cells very close together. Um, so the T cell is aware of the leukemia cell and is now able to kill it. Um, so the drug itself isn't actually killing the leukemia cells. It's just working as a vehicle to bring the immune cells, the patient's own immune cells, into close proximity with the leukemia cells so that the immune cells can actually kill the leukemia. Um, so that's one type of immunotherapy that's, that's being worked on. Um, there are are drugs of that class that are already um, FDA approved for uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, um, and they're being studied in AML, but not yet approved in AML. Um, another type of immunotherapy that has gotten a lot of press recently, I'm sure lots of people have heard about this is, um, or read about this, is CAR T-cell therapy. Um, again, CAR T-cell therapy is uh, already FDA-approved for treatment in ALL and in uh, various types of lymphoma as well as multiple myeloma. Um, and as of yet, we haven't been as successful in finding um, effective CAR T-cell therapy in AML, but we are certainly working on it. Um, but the way that CAR T-cell therapy works is that we we take out a patient's T cells, or um, so it's it's a process called apheresis, where we um, we take out the patient's, we basically take out the blood, filter out the T cells, and put the rest of the blood back, and then those T cells are genetically modified um, so that they can we can get a specific target on those uh, T cells, or we can get a um, we can modify them so that they can go after a specific target on the leukemia cell. And then once they've been modified, we put the cells back. We give them back to the person who has leukemia. And, um, and then they can attack the leukemia cells. They, those T cells have this specific uh, um, uh, antibody, basically, and can go after the specific marker on the leukemia cell. 
And CAR T cell therapy does require chemotherapy to be given prior to getting the CAR T cells. Um, but it, again, has been very effective treatment in people with lymphoid malignancies and with myeloma, and we are still working on, on finding an effective CAR T cell in, in acute myeloid leukemia. Um, and then what we're talking about today is a little bit different in that it's not necessarily using the patient's own immune cells, but it is antibody therapy, um, which is an antibody drug conjugate. Um, so it's slightly different, but it is still antibody therapy. Um, it's just not the patient's own um, immune cells that we're using. I see. Well, thank you for giving us that background because that, that helps me understand the different aspects of it or different aspects of immunotherapy and how to break those down. So thank you for clarifying that. Absolutely. And Okay, so the trial you're going to talk about later in this episode involves IMGN-632, which is, as you said, an antibody drug conjugate. Can you explain to us a little further about what an antibody drug conjugate is, what it does, and why antibody drug conjugates or ADCs are an important area of research for AML? Yes. Um, so... Antibody drug conjugates, they are antibodies that um, target a specific marker or protein on the surface of a leukemia cell, similar to what I was describing with those bispecific antibodies or um, dual affinity retargeting agents. So they, it's an antibody that will go after a specific marker to bind the cell, and then attached to that antibody is, um, is chemotherapy. We call it a payload, but it's, it's a chemotherapy agent that is attached to the antibody. So when that antibody drug conjugate, or ADC, is given, it binds to the leukemia cell, and then it, it, the cell draws in the chemotherapy into the leukemia cell, um, and the, the chemotherapy essentially kills that leukemia cell. So you can kind of think of it as like a targeted uh, drug delivery system. Like it's the, the antibody kind of seeks out those specific cells with that marker, attaches to it, and then the chemotherapy gets brought into the cell and kills it. Hmm. I, I think I remember reading a little uh, analogy about it being like a little dump truck. Does that, does that sound accurate? The, the payload being like a little, it delivers the chemotherapy like a little dump truck and uh, kind of dumps off the chemotherapy to the cancer cell. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's kind of a good visual or not, but uh, yeah, I think I if you, was... yeah, I think you could say that. Like, um, I guess the dump truck would need to know exactly which cell it was going to, but as long as the dump truck, you know, it, it, it only went to specific cells, and then the dump truck dropped mm -hmm. off the chemotherapy into that cell, and then the chemotherapy did its job in that particular cell. And the antibody okay. is just the mechanism of getting the chemotherapy there. It's just the vehicle to get it there. Rather than giving okay. chemotherapy that just kind of goes throughout the whole body, this is... Um, targeting it to only cells that have that particular protein on the surface. 
So if a leukemia cell has a protein on the surface that your normal cells do not have, then you can make an antibody that targets that protein that is only on leukemia cells and not on your normal cells so that these antibodies only bind to leukemia cells and not to the normal cells. And then theoretically that chemotherapy is only being delivered to leukemia cells and not to the normal cells. So the key being finding and identifying the proteins on the cells that are present in AML cells only and not normal cells. Absolutely. That's the hard part, but yes, exactly. Okay. Let's see. So are there any, are there currently any other antibody drug conjugates that are FDA approved for AML right now? Yes. Um, there's a drug called gentuzumab azogamycin. Uh, the other name for it is Mylotarg. Um, and that's an antibody drug conjugate. It's FDA approved for treatment of AML. Um, for it's, it's got a pretty broad indication, actually. Um, we can use it in someone who's newly diagnosed and never been treated. We can use it in someone who has relapsed leukemia. Um, we can use it with chemotherapy. We can use it by itself. Um, so it, it really is kind of a, a broadly used drug. Um, and it is an antibody drug conjugate. Okay. And how effective has gemtuzumab been at treating AML? So that's that's a good question. It's um, it really depends on it depends on a lot. That's a, that's um that's not quite as black and white of an answer as I think we'd like it to be. But um, so I'm going right. to kind of take you back a little bit uh, to kind of just AML in general. Um, and, and you may know some of this already. But essentially, when somebody is diagnosed with AML, um, we look at the chromosomes or the genetic makeup of the cells, and we look at various mutations that may or may not be present in the cells. And with that information, um, we'll classify someone as either favorable risk, intermediate risk, or adverse risk. We do it, that's called a risk stratification. Um, and, and really, the best efficacy, where dentuzumab where, uh, is most effective, is in our favorable risk patients. Um, when we use it in newly diagnosed people, who have, so people who've never been treated before, um, when we use gemtuzumab in combination with high-intensity chemotherapy uh, in someone who has a favorable risk AML, that's where we see the, the, the best response to gemtuzumab. Um, when we look at the data with it, we've seen an increase in survival by 20% at six years when we add gemtuzumab to chemotherapy. Uh, compared to people who got chemotherapy without gemtuzumab. So it's really significant. There's a really significant benefit by adding gemtuzumab in that group of people. Um, in people who are in adverse risk group, um, if we use it in, that, in the frontline setting, meaning people who've never been treated, if we add gemtuzumab to chemotherapy, if they fall into an adverse risk, there's no benefit 
Um, so that's not a group of people we're adding gemtuzumab to their treatment. Um, in the intermediate risk group, there's a, a moderate benefit. It's about a 6% benefit in survival. Um, so it's still meaningful, um, but it's not as good as what we see in the favorable risk group. Um, so it really depends on which, where in that risk stratification um, someone is, and that's, that's the most common group of people that we're using gemtuzumab in. Um, but in addition to that, it, it is a, an antibody drug conjugate that specifically binds to a marker called CD33. So if the leukemia cells do not have CD33 on the surface, then we can't use it because it's not going to bind to anything. There's nothing there for it to attach to. Um, so we have to be testing for CD33 um, at, at, the, at the time that someone's diagnosed. And most, almost everybody is tested for CD33 when they're diagnosed. And the majority of people with AML are CD33 positive. Um, but that test has to be done at diagnosis. Um, and then we'll, we'll typically use it up front because that's where, with favorable risk because that's where we're seeing the highest benefits. And, and so far as the CD33 protein, that's not present at all or on normal cells? It is present on normal cells, and that is, um, that is one of the, the downsides with gemtuzumab is that it is present on normal cells, and so it's not only going to bind to leukemia cells, it can also bind to your normal cells, and so we see, you know, it can lower blood counts and them low sometimes for, for quite some time um, because of that, because it can also go after normal normal early blood cells as well. So it becomes the balancing act of the dosing and trying to not have the toxicity factor? Exactly. Right, we have to find the right dose that we can still allow the blood counts to recover. Um, and, and you know, we want to give enough that we can get rid of the leukemia cells, but also um, uh, allow the blood counts to still recover after getting chemotherapy. So if we so eventually end up having... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, if there's all, there, it's a balancing act because... Um, you know, there's there is toxicity with with it, and um, and we don't want to suppress the bone marrow too much to the point that it it couldn't recover. Right. So if we end up eventually having multiple ADCs that are FDA approved going forward, how do we choose which one a patient gets? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think there's a few different ways to do that. One, obviously, um, we would base it on the data that we have on safety of the of the drugs, um, as well as efficacy. I mean, if if one looks like it gets a significant number of patients, more patients into remission than another, um, that obviously is meaningful. Um, but Typically, we try not to make those type of comparisons unless they've been compared head-to-head -head in a clinical trial. Um, but also, we have to look at the patient population that the drugs have been studied in. Um, so, for example, gemtuzumab, um, most of the clinical trials with gemtuzumab, um, 
it was used with high-intensity chemotherapy. Um, so, you know, again, kind of that upfront setting um, when we use a regimen called 7 plus 3, which is, again, high-intensity chemotherapy, um, or what we call induction chemotherapy. So a regimen like that, very sim 7 plus 3 or something very similar to it, um, that's a lot of where gemtuzumab has been studied. Um, and so that's a lot of where we're using it now. Um, but then some of these other ADCs that have been studied or are being studied now are, are being combined with lower intensity treatment options, um, not necessarily high intensity chemotherapy. That doesn't mean they won't be studied in that situation later, but right now they're, they're being looked at oftentimes with lower intensity treatment. And so the patient population is different. They're not always the young, uh, the young newly diagnosed patients, but sometimes they're older adults with relapse disease or maybe older adults with newly diagnosed AML, but um, um, it, it really, that's part of what makes the difference, right, is, is where, was, where was the drug studied, who was the drug studied in. Um, and in addition to that, the, the um, what we call a molecular subset of will also make a difference. So different mutations that may or may not be present, if we see that uh, certain mutations uh, impacts the response to one of these drugs, that will make a difference. Or like I said before, you know, those favorable risk patients are the ones that really seem to benefit from gemtuzumab. So that's where we have been using gemtuzumab. Um, if we see with IMGN632 or another ADC that comes along that perhaps a different subset of patients really benefits from that drug, then that's the group of patients we'll use IMGN632 in. But we have to do these clinical trials and kind of drill down to the group that really benefits from the drug um, to make sure we're, we're getting, you know, the right group of patients. And obviously, we have to make sure the patient has the right target. So if you have, if you don't have CD33, you're not going to use gemtuzumab. But if you don't have CD123, you're not going to use IMGN632. You have to have the target, the drug target, to be able to use it too. That makes sense. So what important lessons have been learned from gemtuzumab do you think that can be applied to antibody drug conjugate development moving forward? Um, I think there's a few things. One is that um, I think to be most effective, they should be combined with other agents when given by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, they're not as effective, but when we combine them with other drugs, we see better efficacy, which I think is the case with almost everything in AML, to be honest with you. Um, and then, you know, with gemtuzumab, there was a lot of, um, I'm sure you've probably read the history of it, maybe maybe not, but, you know, it was approved back in, I, I want to say 2000 to 2001, and then it was voluntarily withdrawn from the market in 2010 and then put back on the market in 2017. And, um, and I mean, that could be a whole discussion in and of itself, but um, there's been a number, of, um, a number of clinical trials looking at safety, looking at the efficacy, looking at who should get the drug, who shouldn't. But um, at the end of the day, you know, we found that the safety is, is better and the efficacy is, is quite good. When we give gemtuzumab, in what we call fractionated, fractionated dosing. Um, so smaller doses given repeatedly rather than one big dose at one time. 
Um, and so I think that's something we need to pay attention to as well, is that the dosing maybe needs to be fractionated or, or lower than we think, um, and paying attention to the toxicity um, as well. There's, there's the potential for liver toxicity with these drugs, and we need to watch that closely. Um, but that chemotherapy payload is different on some of these drugs, and that can also change the toxicity. Uh, so I think those are some of the, the lessons that we've learned um, from using from using gemtuzumab. Um, but we really need to drill down to the specific patients that derive benefit. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And what a, let's transition into talking more about the IMGN-632 drug and what it is and how it differs from gemtuzumab. Okay. It's... So, yeah, IMGN-632 is, again, it's, a, it's an antibody drug conjugate, but instead of targeting CD33 like, um, like gemtuzumab does, IMGN-632 targets um, a different marker called CD123. Um, so it's an antibody against CD123, and then again, it's, um, it's conjugated or connected to... Um, uh, chemotherapy or something we call a DNA alkylating agent. Um, so that's the type of payload. It's a, it, it basically alters or breaks the, the DNA uh, in the leukemia cell. Um, so the, the main differences between IMGN-632 and, and gemtuzumab are the antibody target is different, and then the, um, the payload, the chemotherapy payload is different. Um, so for this reason, the toxicity of the drug is, is a little bit different, and, um, and very likely the, the efficacy of the drug will probably be different. Um, so the similarities are, are in that, uh, you know, the concept, that whole antibody drug conjugate concept is the same, but otherwise, you know, we, don't, we can't really say that we expect the same side effects or the same outcomes with it. Um, because the rest of it is, is quite different. I see. Um, I don't know if this is going to get too involved here, but I wanted to ask a question about uh, and see if you can explain the difference between a drug targeting a mutation, such as SLT3 or IDH1 mutation, versus drugs that target the specific markers on the cell surfaces, like CD33 or CD123. It, okay. Can you, can you explain that briefly? Yeah. Um, so I think really what we're talking about is the difference between a gene and a, uh, which, which has some um, importance in the development or a role in the development of the cell and how the cell kind of matures or, or grows or changes over time. Or mm -hmm. So those are the genes like FLT3 or IDH. Um, and then the cell surface markers, which are just, um, again, like proteins that are on the outside of the cell that kind of identify that cell. Um, so FLT3 um, is a gene that, you know, the purpose of FLT3 in, is to, it plays a role in the, de in the development of early white blood cells, basically. So when it gets mutated, um, you get this uncontrolled division of um, very immature cells 
we call blasts. Blasts are leukemia cells. Um, so we can give a drug that's a FLT3 inhibitor um, to block those cells that have the mutated FLT3. Um, and, and it basically uh, shuts off that, that mutated gene to restore the normal function, kill off those cells and then restore the normal function of the, of the, uh, the cells in the bone marrow. IDH, when the gene IDH gets mutated, it, um, it basically stops the cells, the blasts in the bone marrow, it stops them from maturing, it prevents them from maturing. Um, and so we can give a, a drug called an IDH inhibitor, and that forces them to mature. It forces them to grow up. Um, so it's basically just adjusting or altering the gene to, to restore its function, more or less, um, to force these cells to mature. Um, so it's kind of altering these mutated genes to restore function or kill the cells with the mutated gene. But when we're targeting a, a marker on the surface of the cell, we're essentially just using that as a way to identify a leukemia cell, to say the leukemia cells have CD33 or CD123, so we're going to go after those. Kind of like if you had um, uh, like a room full of people and, and you wanted to just identify um, It'd be like saying we want to pick all the blonde people out of the room, and so you just look for everyone who's blonde and you pull them out of the room. Uh, so this is basically the drugs are saying we're going to pick all the the CD33 positive cells out, and it attaches to them and gets rid of them. Um, so it's just looking for a marker and attaching to those rather than um, altering the function of a gene in the cell. Uh, was that clear, maybe? Yes. That, that that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. I appreciate that. And so, can you tell us more about CD123? Uh, how do patients know if they have a, a marker? Uh, does it tell us anything about how aggressive a patient's AML is, et cetera? Yeah. Um, so CD123 is. I mean, it's expressed on on basically all early bone marrow stem cells, um, but it's not, there's not a lot of expression on those early bone marrow stem cells. Um, but AML cells, AML stem cells, it's usually overexpressed. So we typically will see a lot of CD123 expression on, um, on AML cells, on BLAST. Um, so that is what makes it a nice target for drugs in AML is that we we can usually in most cases see a lot of it on the leukemia cells and not very much of it on the normal early bone marrow cells. Um, and um, there are some preclinical studies that suggest that higher levels of CD123 expression um, will correlate with worse overall outcomes. Um, but, you know, that's all, it's kind of, I'm, you know, I think we can find some of that data, but we could probably find other data that doesn't support that, but there definitely is data that suggests that. Um, and the way to test for this is with a test called flow cytometry. 
uh, it's usually done in the bone marrow. The pathologist would, would do this test in the bone marrow. Um, and they just look for the presence of specific markers on the leukemia cells um, or on the blast uh, to determine if CD123 is present. If there's blasts in the, in the person's blood, we can do it from the blood, but usually it's done in the bone marrow. Okay. Okay, and why don't we talk about the, the trials that have been done so far for using IMGN 632 and the current trials and what's, what we've learned so far from the trials that have been done. So there's been two primary trials that have been done right now or so far with IMGN 632, and they're still ongoing. Um, one in AML and one in a disease called, um, this is going to sound like a lot of words, but um, blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, or BPDCN. Um, and they're both still ongoing. Um, the AML study is, has certainly enrolled far more patients because BPDCN is quite rare. Um, and in AML, we started out with just IMGN 632 by itself just to determine the safety of the drug, the um, kind of the, to learn the, the, the common side effects of the drug, to figure out the right dose of the drug. Um, and then we started um, combining it with other agents. Um, and because that, of course, is what we're planning on doing moving forward. Because as I mentioned, you know, we know that that these drugs are, are drugs that will be more effective in combination with other agents than just given by themselves. Um, so the most recent data that's been presented, we have enrolled more patients in this now, but the most publicly available data, most recent publicly available data, we've put um, 51 patients on the study with a combination of three drugs, um, the IMGN 632, in combination with a drug called Videza and another drug called Venetoclax. Um, and those, those two are already FDA-approved drugs um, that we use quite commonly to treat AML. Um, so we started out in, in treating people who have relapsed or refractory, or actually, I'm sorry, just relapsed AML. Um, again, with a number of different groups of people with various doses of all three drugs to figure out the, the safety um, and the efficacy. And, um, and then now we have, after a couple of years of various drugs, I mean, I'm sorry, doses, we've settled on the right dose for all three drugs. And now we have um, moved this triplet combination into the frontline setting. So we're now treating people who are newly diagnosed with all three drugs. Um, to, to try to get more more information on how effective it is as a as a frontline treatment option. Yes, it, it seems like there's a lot of trials using triplets that I'm yeah. re reading about the triplet combinations. Absolutely, you know, I mean, before it was you know, Videza was kind of the, the, it was the standard of care for lower intensity treatment. And so everything that came along was being used in combination with Videza. And then um, Venetoclax came along and was studied with Videza. And the combination of Videza plus Venetoclax um, was found to be far superior to Videza by itself. Um, 
so that that combination of vidazovenetoclax has now become the standard of care for someone who's not getting higher intensity chemotherapy. And for that reason now, the newer regimens are basically looking at these triplets uh, of vidazovenetoclax plus drug X to see if we can improve upon, can improve upon um, vidazo plus venetoclax. Um, and that's what we're doing here, is, is seeing if we can improve upon the efficacy without significantly worsening toxicity. That's really our goal. Yes, that makes sense. So what are the next steps in the development of IMGN 632? What comes um, So at this point, we're, we're almost done enrolling people on the, the part of the study that involves uh, people with relapse disease. Um, um, we are just finishing up that cohort of the study, and we have um, plans to enroll about 20 more people with newly diagnosed AML um, on the triplet. Um, Again, the idea here is to just get kind of a preliminary idea of that, how effective this triplet is in the frontline setting, um, and then to better understand um, how quickly the, the blood counts recover and things like that in the frontline setting, because that's going to be different than what we've seen in, um, in the relapsed setting. Um, so we want to get a good idea of that, a good understanding of that. And as long as um, what we see in that setting looks encouraging, then you know we'll move. We'll, we'll design a phase three trial. That um, I, of course this is up to the company, but I know that you know they would want to move it forward and look at a larger study, uh, likely comparing the triplet to. Uh, very, I'm, I'm assuming this is what they're going to want to do. They have not said this for sure, but likely comparing it to vidazovenetoclax to see if we get better responses and better overall survival with the triplet than we do with just vidazovenetoclax. Um, um, if we can keep people in remission, get more people in remission, keep them in remission longer, and keep people alive significantly longer without worsening toxicity. That, that's, of course, our goal. But we need to compare it to the current standard of care to make sure that it's actually better. Okay. Um, and I have a question about, so can you have CD33 and CD123 markers? At the same time? Yes. Yes, you can. Most people okay. probably do. Most people, okay. So would it ever make sense to combine drugs to target two different CD markers like CD123 and CD33? Would that, would that look like combining Gem2Zmab and IMGN632, or would that be developing a new drug that targets both? I mean, this, this might be hypothetical. <laughs> um, certainly you could. Um... Um, I'm trying to think of if, yeah, I mean, you certainly could 
Um, I don't know. Usually we kind of combine drugs with different mechanisms of action um, mm -hmm. because um, just so that we're not kind of overlapping, again, just not overlapping mechanisms, but um, and potentially overlapping toxicities. But you, I mean, theoretically you could um, because mm -hmm. most people will have CD33 and CD123 expressed. But usually we're going to pick uh, things that kind of work differently. Um, and um, and put those together. So we have kind of different ways for the drugs to work. So if you're if you have both, then how are you choosing which drug to use then? If if there's C D one twenty three and C D thirty three, uh do you is there an obvious choice in that case? Um Again, it'll kind of go back to if this is a young patient with favorable risk AML, um, that's okay. someone that you would probably give induction chemotherapy with gemtuzumab. But, um, you know, if, if IMGN632 is approved in combination with Fidesa and Venetoclax, uh, very likely that would be in a group of, of patients who are older and not considered eligible for intensive chemotherapy. So, um, for whatever reason, whether it's comorbidities or age or, uh, you know, there's a, there's a variety of reasons that they would fall into that category. Um, and so, um, you know, the, it would basically be whatever population that this triplet combination is studied in is where that would be, um, would be used. But now, you know, if we do a later clinical trial with IMGN632 in combination with intensive chemotherapy um, and find that this drug, you know, improves survival significantly in our favorable risk AML patients, then it really is going to come down to the toxicity of the two drugs, the, um, which one results in higher response rates and improved survival, and then if all else is equal, it would come down to cost. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense, and obviously cost becomes a huge factor. Yeah, I mean, if if one one leads to, you know, a cure, and the other leads to fifty percent of people being cured, obviously we're going to use the one that, you know, cured everybody. But, you know, as of right now, that's not what we have, and so if they're both equal on all accounts, but one costs twice as much, we're going to use the one that's not as expensive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so if, if we continue to see the positive outcomes in the trials, do you have any idea when this drug might become FDA approved? So or? we're seeing very um, positive outcomes in the trial that's being done for BPDCN. Um, and again, that's a much smaller trial because it's a very rare disease. Um, so this drug has already been given um, a breakthrough designation status by the FDA um, for BPDCN. Um, and um, I, I, I imagine, and this, you know, I don't know, 
but I imagine if it's going to get FDA approval, it will probably get FDA approval in BPCN before AML, just because um, it's farther along in that setting. Um, but as far as AML is concerned, I think it will still be a few years because um, you know we'll have to design a phase three trial that um, will take a few years to to design and complete and then get the the data to the FDA. Um, so I would say probably another three to four years before it would be FDA approved at least for AML. Okay, three to four years. Okay. Um, and I guess as just kind of a more general question, um, what do you think is the future of immunotherapy in AML over the next five to ten years? I know you, you, you sort of gave us a great sort of overview of the different types of immunotherapy, but in general, if you could just speak to where we're headed there in AML. I think um, we have, you know, the issue that we've been having is honestly finding a good target. Um, because a lot of the targets on AML BLAST are also found on early um, bone marrow stem cells. And that makes things complicated because we don't want to kill off the early stem cells in the bone marrow that are normal um, early cells because we are, you know, we don't want to ablate the bone marrow. Um, so we struggle there, whereas other uh, diseases, we don't have that same complication. Um, so, you know, I think that that's a big reason that we are a little bit farther behind. Um, but um, we've definitely made some headway, and we're, you know, continuing to find newer targets that look promising and look encouraging. So, um, you know, we, we had a, a DART, which is the dual affinity retargeting agent, or, uh, yeah, um, retargeting drugs, those, we had one that was targeting C123 that looked encouraging, but then it just recently got abandoned, but they're, they're developing a new one, kind of improving upon what they had. Um, so I think there's some hope in that, moving in the right direction. There are a large number of CAR T-cell trials done in AML, um, and so you know, hopeful that that will start to make ground in that area um, over the next five to ten years. Um, we certainly have, have made huge strides in lymphoma and multiple myeloma in that area in the last five years. Um, and then these antibody drug conjugates are definitely exciting. Again, I don't think that using them as, as single agents by themselves, I don't think that's where we're going to see huge progress. But when we use them in combination with other other uh, drugs, that's where they they make uh, significant impact. And um, so if we find a good target and can use them in combination with other drugs, I think we can start to see some impactful changes. Well, that sounds promising. I, I know it's just exciting because there's been so many drugs that have been introduced in the last 
I guess since 2017, there's been nine drugs introduced. And yeah. so I think that's, that's pretty exciting um, and gives me a lot of hope for the future. Yes, absolutely. We're making headway. We're, there's no question about that. We're making headway. Yes, and I think that's that's just wonderful. Okay, so I'd like to open it up now for caller questions. If you have questions about anything Dr. Sweet discussed today, you can call in to 515-602-9728. And once you're on the call and ready to ask your question, press 1 on your keypad. And I'm just going to give a second to see if any calls come in. Okay, uh, so I have a caller that ends in 7401. I'm going to unmute 7401. Okay, go ahead, Hi. caller 7401. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for this. Um, this has been interesting. I do have a question about um, side effects with IMGN 632. Have there been any identified? And how do those, if so, how do those side effects compare with gemtuzumab? Yeah. Um, so the most common side effects that we're seeing um, are what we call infusion-related reactions, which um, are, which are not uncommon when we give antibody therapy. Um, so those would be like fevers during the infusion or um, what we call rigors, kind of like shaking. Like if you were to have a fever, you know, you get the shakes um, or some shortness of breath. Um, things that we can typically treat with Benadryl or steroids. Um, and we see that in about a third of people. Um, but they're usually low grade and... Um, and we actually just recently made a change to our pre-medication, so what we're giving people before giving the drug, and that has significantly decreased the rate of infusion-related reactions. Um, so it was about a third of people, and it's dropped it, um, I want to say, closer to like 10% now that we've, we've made changes to the pre-medication. Um, so that's gotten much better. Um, another side effect that is not uncommon with IMGN 632 is um, edema, which is uh, fluid building up uh, typically in the lower extremities, in the lower legs. Um, in most cases, it's um, low grade. We, can, we grade things like one through, one through four, um, one being kind of mild, not very severe, four being really significant, and most of it is grade one or grade two. Um, but So it's more of an annoyance than a major problem, but it is still not uncommon. And we've seen that uh, in about 20% of people. Um, and we can give um, diuretics like water pills to get that fluid off, and usually that's good enough. Um, but those have been kind of the more common things. And then... Um, other side effects are things that we see kind of across the board with most AML therapy um, as far as lowering of the blood counts and that kind of thing. Um, what we see with gemtuzumab oftentimes is, um, not oftentimes, but probably the biggest concern, I should say, with gemtuzumab is, is toxicity to the liver 
at something called veno-occlusive disease, or VOD. Um, and that's a big concern, especially in someone who is potentially going to move forward with, with a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant. Um, and we have not been seeing VOD in, uh, in people being treated with, with IMGN 632. So that has been encouraging. Um, we've been very pleased that we are not seeing VOD in these patients so far. Um, it's really primarily the infusion-related reactions, which I think we're getting our we're getting our hands on as far as how to manage that, and then the lower extremity edema, which um, is manageable. But you know, I mean, it'd be great if it was less. But I think we're managing it okay. Awesome. Thank you. Uh -huh. Okay, uh, let's see if we have another question here. We have a question from 0653. I'm going to unmute you right now. Oh, okay, go hey, ahead with your uh, question. Jake. Yeah, um, if I'm interested in a trial, how can I find out, like, my eligibility? And I'm kind of curious as to, outside of your hospital, are there trials, go like, going on in other hospitals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, probably the best way to do it, short of asking your doctor to guide you, um, which may or may not be an effective route, depending on where you are, um, there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and um, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov and you can type in, you know, acute myeloid leukemia, if you just type in acute myeloid leukemia, you're going to get a whole wealth of stuff that may or may not be applicable to you. Um, but you can start, um, you can start that way, and um, and you can kind of narrow it down. But all every clinical trial that is open in the United States is listed on that website, and um, you can kind of look through the criteria for eligibility and it will have the the name and the contact information for the clinical trial coordinator and the principal investigator at all of the sites that the trial is open at. Um, so it, you can look through all of that and then um, you can reach out to the coordinator and see if it's something that might be um, applicable for you. Oh, awesome. And um, just kind of out of curiosity, the clinical trials that you mentioned, are those specifically running at your hospital or do they have arms in other locations as well? The ones that I mentioned with IMGN 62 are open here and they're open at other sites as well. Um, the the um, IMGN 62 AML study is open at oh, probably... 15 sites, I think, around the United States, at least. Oh, wow. um, yeah. Um, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. I know it's Northwestern in Chicago, MD Anderson in Houston, City of Hope in Los Angeles, uh, Cornell in New York, um, uh, Roswell Park in Buffalo. I can't remember all of them. But it's open, Duke. It's open at Duke, I think. Um, it's quite a few places, but um, if you look on clinicaltrials.gov, you can see where that's open. Um, but then, again, there's going to be a lot more trials, too, if you look on that website. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Of course. 
And I'll just mention too that um, on our website, uh, healthtrue.org, we have a clinical trial finder tool which can also be helpful and sometimes is a little bit easier than ct.gov and you can enter uh, sort of search criteria and that can often help as well. So perfect. That's awesome. Is we still have to help. That's perfect. Okay. Um, so I think we need to wrap up. That's all the time we have for questions today. Um, and Dr. Sweet, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful for your generosity with your time and your willingness to share your incredible expertise with us. And we'd love to have you on the show again sometime in the future to share updates on immunotherapy and the different trials you're working on. Absolutely. We wish you all the best in your in your clinical practice and your research endeavors. And thank you for all that you're doing to help further a cure for AML. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was fun, and I'm happy to join anytime. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Podcast for AML. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you.